Hey, it's Rebecca, and you can hear new episodes of No Limits four days early on TuneIn. Someone mentioned to me that I should meet Lady Gaga. Now, everyone at the company had passed on her. So I called her then manager, and he brought her in. And it was that moment where you just knew. And she said, take a bet on me, and I'm telling you I'm going to be the biggest artist in the world. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all of the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, meet the woman responsible for signing and growing the careers of artists like Lady Gaga, Alicia Keys, and Pharrell Williams. Jody Gerson is the CEO and chairman of Universal Music Publishing Group. She made history as the first female ever to be named chairman of a major global music company. Her skill for recognizing and developing talent has been integral in shaping the music industry over the last three decades, and you're about to hear how she does it. Jody Gerson, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. You are the chairman and CEO of Universal Music Publishing Group, the most senior female executive in the music industry. For now. I mean, we can hope, right, that there will be even more senior women joining your ranks. You signed Alicia Keys when she was 14 years old. I did. Signed Lady Gaga. Yep. You've worked with Pharrell, Pitbull, Jermaine Dupri, Rod Stewart. The list goes on and on. You have a really interesting backstory as well. You grew up in Philadelphia, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Yep. And your dad was in the nightclub business? He was. I mean, I didn't know that other people didn't have that same experience. <laughs> yeah. I grew up uh, suburbs of Philadelphia, main, in Mainline, um, Philadelphia. And I went to an all-girls private school and all the, you know, kind of, I mean, not fancy, but... And my dad had a nightclub. So my life was going to my dad's nightclub every Sunday for the matinee show because in those days they played whoever the artist was, whether it was Sinatra or Diana Ross and the Supremes or Richard Pryor. They would do seven shows and two shows on Sunday. So my mother would take my brother and I to every matinee show to have dinner with my father and my grandfather. So in my house, we would listen to Diana Ross and the mm-hmm. Supremes cleaning the house on Sundays. Mm-hmm. That's That was what we listened mm-hmm. to, and mm-hmm. we would sing along. You were actually there with them. I was there, yeah. And not just that. It was like the kind of thing where, you know, my mom, who was a stay-at-home mom, um, you know, would not only wake us, you know, get us ready for school every morning and drive us up to the bus if we were late in her nightgown, because um, I think that's what you did in those days. <laughs> you have a coat on over. But she would get up in the middle of the night and make parties for my dad if he was bringing people home. Yeah. I mean, I remember I'm shaking Gladys my head in disbelief. night at the house. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She tells a story about Sammy Davis wanting like matzo ball soup or something. And she <laughs> did would. Did she whip that up? Yes. And she would get up in the morning and get us ready for school. Yes, she did. Did you ever think about wanting to be a performer growing up around them? No. Why not? Because I didn't have that thing to, number one, I didn't have that thing to be famous. I wasn't a great singer. I knew, I what I got out of it was a real understanding of an artist's mind, of an artist's psyche, of the insecurities, of the anxieties. It's just something that I gravitated toward. I mean, I could have done what I'm doing or I could have been a shrink, honestly. Like, that was the thing that I really paid attention to. And 
obviously I loved music, but I really had a sense, you know, in, in, at my dad's nightclub, there was a comedian that opened for every artist. So, I mean, I saw every comedian throughout, you know, through the 60s and 70s. I mean, 70s really when I was grown up enough, but I just could get, I could, you know, I could see the anxiety before they walked out of on stage. I could see what happens when they lit up a room. Um, and so I always, so I didn't want that for me. But what I wanted was to be involved somehow and to be behind the scenes, really supporting talent. You went to Northwestern. I did. So you left the East Coast. Was that a deliberate choice of I need to? Kind of. This is what it was. When I was 15, we went to L.A. and My dad was doing business and we went on that, that trip to L.A. where you drive to San Francisco, you drive up the coast. And we stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Um, it was very fancy for us. And I remember being in L.A. and saying, I'm moving here. and I'm moving here. So when I wanted to go to college, I wanted to move to California. And my father said, no, crazy people live in California. And so he said I could go as far west as Chicago. <laughs> so I went to Northwestern. I'm and, not kidding. And you studied communications? I did. By the way, while you were at Northwestern, I read that one of your – the check – Oh, the bounce. bounce check? Oh, yeah. My mother loves when I tell this story. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to tell you that Your story? mother who was getting up in the middle of my the mother, night to yeah, make matzo ball loved, soup and in the morning held it, to make sure you got to school and everything was here's held the together. Truth. My mother held it together. But what happened was, you know, my dad was in the nightclub business, which at the time was a cash business. So we lived very large. And I think it looked like we had this very large, wealthy life when, in fact, you know, my dad didn't believe in putting anything away. He was going to live forever. It was just not his mentality. And so I went to Northwestern, and my second year, I got a call from the bursar's office that I had to see them, and they dropped all of my classes because my dad had bounced the tuition check. But, you know, I was telling my children, my 15-year-old son, Luke, the other day, somebody said to me, something was happening with my kids, and Somebody said, Do you, have you told your kids about your life? I'm like, why? He said, tell your kids about your life. So and they'll so, appreciate what they have? Well, no, not that. Because they have to realize that life wasn't – I wasn't always the chairman of a company. Why did I get there? And so one of – I tell that story, even though my mother hates when I tell it publicly, that um, it defined me. Because here I was, a child of privilege – then something bad happened. Something that I, I must tell you, as a child, I instinctively knew something was going to happen. I just always felt like I had to be the grown up. And here I was at Northwestern, far away from home. And, you know, I remember being embarrassed by it, but I acted. I I must have called home. My grandfather must have paid the tuition. I don't really remember those details, but what I do remember is going around from teacher to teacher, having to re- having them reinstate me and having to make a joke out of the fact that my father bounced a tuition check, but then getting a job. I got a job. I worked at a store called JK Sweets. I made, um, I, t- I made those frozen croissants. I put them in that big pan. I think I, it's when I probably gained my, my, the freshman 15 a year later by eating a lot of the sweet and salty mix. But I got a job, and then I worked my way through college. I, I had a, my next job was a job at a clothing store in Chicago, and I worked weekends. And you know what? It was good for me. And the reason that I, I guess it was time to tell my children that it was because 
you know, adversity sometimes makes it just it made me stronger, and it made me. I don't. I'm sure that there were other things that were really bad about it, but I think that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I had to get it together. Did you automatically leave school and get your first job in the music industry? Was that your first thing? Yeah, I graduated from Northwestern and I moved back to Philly because um, my dad wouldn't send. I, then he wouldn't send me to move to California. So then I was going to be in New York. So I would take the train back and forth. And the first job that I got was a job at a music publishing company. I wanted a job at a music company. Um, and something came up at what a company called Chapel Music that I'd never heard of. And there was an entry-level position. And I went in with my fancy um, interview outfit, you know, my kind of suit. But I knew it was, it like was a, a little cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a loose – yeah, like a suit, but not like a formal suit, but like a, a good little – for the music business, kind of a hip kind of suit. And I took a job, like Xeroxing lead sheets at Chapel Music, and just to get in. So you're in the music industry. Mm-hmm. You are starting to live your dream. Does it feel that way? Now? No, back then. Did, did it feel that way? In that first job, did you feel like, I'm making it, I'm making the right choices? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, you know, it was a weird job because at the time nobody knew what music publishing was and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't MTV at the Explain time. Explain what like, music publishing is. Music publishing is songs. So so there's a master recording, which is the record companies and it's the, master, the recording of the song. P- music publishing is about songs. The way I explain it to people is every time you hear a song, whether you're in an elevator, watching a television show, at the, a movie theater – um, at a at, at a concert, that song or, or downloading a song or streaming a song, that song had to be licensed and paid for. And that's music publishing. It's a separate right from the master right, which is the recording, the artist singing the song. So you're in music publishing. Yep. You are as close to living the thing that you envisioned uh-huh. yourself living. Mm-hmm. And now you're around all of these musicians mm-hmm. and celebrities, Yep. which you kind of grew up around, too. Mm-hmm. Did you have early on in your experience, you know, you hear about sexual harassment now. Did you come into that? Was it clear that you were a woman versus being a guy? Yeah, it was. And I think in some ways I was very conscious of the fact that I could get into anybody's office, anyone's office. Because you were a woman. Absolutely. Because I was, yeah, definitely. There weren't as many women in the business then. Um but I knew I was young, I was smart, you know, I was semi-attractive, I suppose, one might have thought then when I was young. Um, I mean, I am now. I, why Why would I say that? I mean, as a woman, of course, I would say that I would, you know, knock myself. Okay, let's You don't need to knock pull yourself. Pull it back. Um, but I knew that I could get into anybody's office. And, and if they were going to be dumb enough, just let me in there. I mean, because from the time I was in entry-level positions, I was trying to get ahead. Um and so I would use that to my advantage. Now, I also think that I got married, you know, youngish for the time because I I wanted to be safe. I knew there was I knew from growing up backstage at a nightclub that there was danger lurking. I also knew not to put myself in certain situations. Not that I would ever think that a woman is responsible for a man's bad action by being in the wrong place, you know, knowing that you're in the wrong place because it's uh, it is never her fault. Um, but 
I knew when it was time to leave. I knew that I wasn't in the boys' club. I knew there were certain things that happened in my career where, you know, I knew certain people were getting ahead because they played golf with one another or they went to basketball games. And I I just never did that. So I don't know that I was ever – I don't know that looking back that I was ever sexually harassed. I think that I was maybe – held back and allowed myself to be held back because I wasn't in certain male circles. Were you ever concerned, for example, you mentioned a couple of different activities that you mm-hmm. weren't a part of. Mm-hmm. Was it a concern along the way that by not being a participant there that that was going to potentially hold back your career? I think I was conscious of it. There were times in my career where it was evident that they wanted somebody to run the office who could take guys to basketball games and play golf. But I never wanted to be in that club. The truth is I didn't want to be in that club. And I guess the way I look at it now is that we have to form our own club and we have to form our own sisterhood because, you know, why would I want to be in that club? Did it take me longer to get where I am to be the chairman? Absolutely. How much, if you had to quantify, how Mm -hmm. much longer do you think it took because of that? It didn't happen until I was over 50. And what would would it be if you were a guy? Oh, my gosh. First of all, if I was a guy, I would have gone for – I didn't go for a lot of those big jobs. Because the trade-off wasn't interesting. Like, it sounds like you didn't – I didn't – okay. I think part of it is that when men have families, they're not thinking about what they have to give up in order to take the big job. They don't think about adding on to the responsibility of their lives by taking the big job. I was always managing my family. It was important to me to have three kids. There was a big gap between my first one and my second one. I had a lot of issues getting pregnant with successfully with my second one. So there was a lot of time that maybe I thought, it's okay. I don't need the big job mm-hmm. right now because I'm building a family. I don't know that men ever think that or ever think, oh, you know, I'll take a little less money because I want to be able to run out mm-hmm. and and watch my kids' mm-hmm. um, baseball game. So, you know, I, I, I think that, look, it happened to me because I hit a wall. It was a personal thing. I got divorced. Right before I was 50, I was negotiating a new contract. I was co-president at a company, and I was just like, can you just make me president? My co-president's wonderful, but look at the success I've had, please. And the answer was no. And I was like, how many times can I ask? And why was was the answer? Was there a specific reason why the answer was no? I don't know. I don't know. I think it was a long relationship. I'd worked for the same person for a really long time. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think that, I, I also think I was caught up in wanting to please my boss, wanting to be the good girl, thinking that it would come to me because I was so the good girl. Yeah. I was not only having Head success. Head down, work hard, be successful. It's going to happen. And there was a conversation I had with my then boss, kind of like at the end of the negotiation for my new deal, where I just realized, here I am, divorced, raising three children. I'm going to work just as hard being a chairman of a company as I am being the co-president of a company. And I left that meeting 
done. Done. And I called Lucien Grange, who was then the head of Universal Music Group, who had tried to hire me a couple of years earlier. And I said, you know what? I th- I'm ready to go. And he didn't think I'd ever leave because I would never leave the man who I'd been with for 25 years. Because remember, I was invested in being the good wife, the good employee to the, you know, it, I was. And remember, it was partly because, you know, I had a mom of the 50s. I didn't know. How did I know? I didn't know other women. Anyway, long story short, I called Lucy and Grange and he said, are you ready to be the global chairman of Universal Music Publishing? And I said, yes. And that was it. It was a moment. So that was Sony. So I left Sony to go to Universal. Sony Mm -hmm. to go to Universal. And Mm -hmm. you basically are the, I mean, they didn't, they had probably been talking to you or hinting that that was something of interest. Or you literally approached them and said, I'm ready to be your chair. No, I didn't say I'm ready to be your chair. I said, I'm ready to come work for you. He said, are you ready to be the global chairman and CEO of Universal Music Publishing? And I said, yes, partly out of spite because I thought about it. And I remember it was a very poignant moment. I was talking to a woman. I had taken the job, not really thinking about it. I didn't think about it because I don't know that I knew it was okay to be that ambitious. I didn't know it was okay. And and what I hope is that girls now know it's okay and go for it because they're not going to give it to you. You, you have to ask for it. You have to take it. And and But I remember saying to someone, what am I going to do? The, my big dilemma was how was I going to tell my boss at Sony that I was leaving? Because we were very close. We, You know, it, the relationship worked in many, many ways. I learned so much from him. How am I going to tell him I'm leaving? And the person said to me, why is that your problem? It's time to step into your own power. Take care of you. And honestly... I never thought of that before. That's the truth. If you could go back and give yourself some piece of advice, because it all ultimately has worked out. Here you are. Oh, absolutely. But if you were to go back and tell the young woman starting out at EMI and then Mm -hmm. to Sony, do this differently, Mm -hmm. what's one thing you would have done differently along the path? Okay, I think it's not what I would tell myself because it worked out for me. What I would want is it for not for it not to happen in the same way to someone else. So what I would say to a young girl is, is step into your power. You have to, you have to trust your instincts and not be apologetic. Take what you want in your voice. I I don't believe that we should mirror the way men have worked. You know, in power positions. I I talk about my power being the ability to empower others. That's power to me. So I think that I would say, when you're ready, take it. And don't be afraid to compete. And don't be afraid to use your voice. And don't apologize for wanting it. That's what I would say. Do it in your own voice and in your own way when you're ready to do it. When you were signing Lady Gaga, uh huh, take us through that. How did that go down? More from our discussion after a quick word from our sponsor. Over 3 million businesses use Indeed.com for hiring. And independent research shows five times more hires are made through Indeed than any other job site. By creating the easiest, most effective hiring experience, Indeed helps businesses find great new people every day. Right now, Indeed is giving new users a $50 credit to post a sponsored job on the world's number one job site. Claim your credit at Indeed.com offer. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. 
when you were signing Lady Gaga. Uh huh. Take us through that. How did that go down? Okay, I had just come to Sony. Um, I had been at EMI Music Publishing for many, many years, where I had lots of success with lots of big superstar artists. And I went to Sony, and I thought, oh, there are no more big superstar artists. How am I ever going to do this again? <laughs> There's like, never going to be another superstar. Right, how am I going to do this again? And someone mentioned to me that I should meet Lady Gaga. Now, everyone at the company had passed on her. Everyone. She had been an intern at Famous Music. They bought Famous Music. But um, a woman in New York who said to me, you should check her out. So I called her then manager, and I said, "Can I've heard about her. Can you bring her in? And he brought her in, and it was that moment where you just knew. She told me she was going to be the biggest artist in the world. She was going to – she said it wasn't about money. It was about fame, and it was about art. And she said – take a bet on me and I'm telling you I'm going to be the biggest artist in the world and I just believed her now she she remembers playing me music I don't remember that part I remember admiring this woman with such conviction and such she she possessed such confidence and I have to say that it was at that moment that everything changed for me in terms of the way I looked at artists she was probably the first artist who she determined her future she determined she was the boss it wasn't a manager who was a Svengali she was her own Svengali and um, from that meeting on number one any artist that I've ever signed has gotten me where I am today no question but she was so powerful and did such good with her fame that I mean she's she's kind of she's amazing Amazing. But it was a moment where I took a leap of faith in her. It's interesting to me that she basically said, believe in me. I believe in myself. I Mm -hmm. know what I'm going to do. How often does an artist say that to you? Is that is that because I would assume that every artist would have to walk in and and say something along those lines. They don't. No, they don't. And it it really make you know the difference. You really know the difference. There's. It wasn't like she questioned her own talent and needed someone to believe in her. Right. She was just like, I'm it. I'm telling you, I'm it. Um, many artists come in and I'll say, I'll give this little test where I'll say, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And if they have an answer, they're, they're not going to be. Because you, you can only really do that one thing because it takes so much. And there's also... You know, there's a thing about why do some people need to be so famous and so popular? Why do, you know... Is that important, that desire and need to be famous, to become famous in that way? Um, I think it, it's what takes people, to some of it, to superstar status. Because I think there is something missing in every artist that makes them have many people who need to love them. I think music is changing now. And to me... Honestly, the best thing about my job is that I get to sign artists who have the ability to change culture. That's the key. And I think Gaga did that in some ways. Alicia had done that. Um, and there, there are a few other artists that really they make a difference culturally. And I think that's exciting. What do you think is the biggest mistake artists are making right now, That especially the new artists that are coming in? What do you see them doing that they shouldn't be? This is so controversial. I don't understand, and, and maybe it makes me sound old. I don't understand why girls don't wear clothes. 
they're so powerful, and yet so many women don't wear clothes on stage. And I know that's a weird thing to say out loud, and and I'd like to believe it's because they feel empowered, and maybe that's a good thing, but I've talked about this before. I'm just not sure, because here they are, these incredibly strong, powerful women with powerful voices of influence, and I think about little girls looking up at them and thinking, well, should I not wear clothes too? You know? Yeah. And and so I wonder, that's that's the the one thing I wonder because the thing about music today is that kids are really listening and really paying attention and and I think the the visuals that young girls see are really impactful and I think we have to be careful and I think some of them play into the gender biases that are happening today. Well, it's it's interesting if you think about like I look at this with social media for example. You can post a really empowering picture or you can post a really sexy picture. And guess which one is going to get the most likes? The sexy picture. I know, but is the sexy picture empowering? Do we do we are we now so confused as a culture <laughs> that that person posting it thinks that's the empowering picture? What do you teach your kids? I teach, well, I teach them all the same thing to, 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 to go out into the world with integrity. The big note that I'm trying to teach my 13-year-old daughter is to trust her instinct and to find her feminine power and to really have a strong sense of self and to be sure that the decision she makes, she makes for herself. Um. And that, you know, she finds that power in herself and that she realizes that girls and women are great and that and we won't be able to achieve what we all want to achieve if women don't come together. Um, and I teach my boys to be good men. You know, my, my 23-year-old son has a girlfriend who is strong and has I mean, just she so impresses me. And I love that he's able to be with a strong woman with a strong sense of self. And they have this very equal relationship. And I'm blown away. Like, maybe I did do something right. Well, it's a testament to the example you set. I hope so. I hope so. You, you're as a kid, you wanted to move out to L.A. Mm-hmm. You got that. Yep. How does L.A. versus East, how does the East versus <laughs> West Coast play out in the music industry? Well, so much is happening in L.A. because everybody's moved to L.A. So there's more more artists in L.A. Um, look, I've always felt like I brought that East Coast mentality to L.A. Like, you know, that thing where you have to be the first <laughs> to cross the street. Um, even though when you're driving, you have to be somewhat careful about that. Um, but I think I brought that, you know, most of my friends are from the East Coast. So we 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 do have that East Coast bond. But it's funny, I'm raising kids in L.A., you know, and and I think that it's a place that's somewhat deceiving because it all looks so beautiful and there is – I see my friends who are raising kids on the East Coast. I mean it's a little bit of a harder life. It's a, it's much less competitive in L.A. Um, you know, and the sun's always shining. So my kids wear sweatshirts. But in terms of music business, <laughs> you know, it's. I just think it's an easier place to live. What is a day like for you? How, how, how do you spend your time? Okay, ready? You have yes. to breathe through this. Um, 
So wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Welcome. I'm in the 5.30 club. Um, partly because I like that hour to myself. So I get up at 5.30. I have my coffee. I meditate. Well, I meditate. Then I have my coffee. And I read the paper. Well, I had to just... Um, the LA Times? No. <laughs> I read the New York Times. <laughs> and I do... I'm embarrassed to say I read page six. But, um, you know, and then I read the New York Times. And I read Skim... And now I like the broadsheet. I'm yep. way into that. Um, and so I read through the news and then I get my – I feed my dogs because, of course, you know, I have to just pile it on and rescue a new um, Siberian husky because that's a whole other thing. Then I get my kids up at 630. Um, I get them breakfast. They get dressed. I take them to the bus. At, I have to leave the house no later than 705. By 7.15, we're through the bus stop. Yay. And then either I go back up the hill and I do Pilates or yoga, get ready to go to work. And my work day starts as soon as I get there. And I have a full day at work. I've been trying to do a lot of lunches and stuff in the office so that I'm, I'm really efficient in my time. How much of your day is meetings? All day. All day. Yeah. Yeah. Mo- it's mostly meetings, some internal, some external. Um, yeah, I'm talking to people all day and listening to music. So you still do a lot of listening to music. I do. Not as much as I'd like. But I, yeah, I do. Because if I'm signing an artist and I'm working closely with them, I have to be able to listen. I also have to know what else is happening culturally, music-wise. What's your favorite music right now? Um, there's an artist named SZA who I signed who I think is a really important young female voice. And I'm really excited about her. Really excited. I think about your career and, and the fact that in most of the places that you've worked, you stayed there for, I'm looking at it like almost six years. Oh, Chappelle, longer. Oh, yeah, longer. well, well, yeah, Chapel was seven. Chapel. Then I went to EMI where I was there for 17 years. And then I went to Sony. I'm telling you, I'm a good, loyal girl. Right. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. So how do you balance <laughs> that? There, there's a great aspect to loyalty. Mm-hmm. You could be take sometimes you're taken care of because mm-hmm. you're a loyal soldier. How do you balance that loyalty with ambition and wanting to get ahead and wanting to see and experience new things? Well, I think in the position I am now, my loyalty is now turned to the 800 people who work for me. And that's where my loyalty lies. So it's not as much. I think I've finally grown up. And, and while I am loyal to people who are good to me, being the chairman of the company, Lucy and Grange, it's really important to me to be loyal to the people who work for me and with me and to make sure that culturally I've changed the company to um, so that we can include all kinds of people to work in the company. And I'm not the only one who gets to go watch my daughter's dance recital or take my mom to the doctor, that we've really created a culture where everyone can live their life and come to work, and that we're respectful of people's lives outside of the workplace, um, because so many of us work now, and not, and it's not all by choice. People have to work, so that's that's a big thing. And loyal to my people in that, I want everybody to feel a part of our success. We wouldn't have been able to, to you know, win the Derby on the Prince deal or the Springsteen deal or the Jack White deal or the Bee Gees deal if it weren't for every single person at my company doing a great job. It's not just me. So I hope I answered that question. It's interesting. This has now come up. um, The last interview, the the last person I spoke to was a four-star general. 
in the U.S. Air Force. She mentioned the exact same thing, this she, idea of loyalty. I love that. She. She is, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. She's one of the highest women in the military. Um, Carolyn Everson at Facebook mentioned this, this idea of putting yourself in the shoes of your employees mm-hmm. and, and making sure that people are not only working really hard towards the objective, but also feel personally fulfilled. Absolutely. What's been the toughest lesson for you along the way? I think the toughest lesson, I don't, I guess the, the, the big lesson is figuring out to trust my own sense of self. And the biggest lesson is that I can do it in my voice and that, you know, when, when, when you ask people about power, especially now, you think about the abuses of power. I mean, and that's, and I think of power as a great responsibility to be able to affect other people's lives, whether it's the ability to sign artists who change the world or have the ability to change culturally or, or you know, and, and who get, you know, to make music that people love or that people cry to or laugh to or dance to. And that I have the ability to empower those who deserve to be empowered and and to lead by example. And I think that, you know, I've learned from some great bosses and some lousy ones. But the fact that I came to this being sure that I could run this company as a mom. And I don't like to, you know, listen, women running companies don't have to be mothers. But I think that there's something that I'm not I'm not going to apologize for nurturing people or for having my kids or any of that. We have to bring all of that. I think the big lesson is if women are going to be running companies, that we have to run them as us, as women, and be proud of that. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Not to handle something head on, that it would go away. That I, I once did something, I, I didn't even know I did it wrong, and I offended an artist, and it just became the biggest thing. Ugh. And, and somebody told you not to tell the artist that you did it wrong? Somebody told me not to apologize. Somebody said, it'll just go away. You don't need to do anything. And it festered for years, and it was awful, and it was such bad advice, and I didn't do anything. I didn't trust my gut, which would, would have been just a call and say, you misunderstood. I'm sorry if I did something to offend you. I am so sorry. Was it a boss that was telling you not to do something? Correct. So you, I mean, I wonder now looking back on it if if he did it on purpose so that Mm. it would be a real misstep for me. But at the same time, that's a complicated situation. Were you early in your career? So early. So the, the thing that's complicated about that is if you feel in your gut, especially when it's a relationship, that you're making a misstep, but your boss is the one telling you to do that. Yeah. On some levels, it's either that other person in your relationship with them or your relationship with the boss. Yeah, you had to choose. But I feel, even to this day, I feel bad about it because I knew the right thing to do. I knew it. And it's why anybody who ever comes into my office or has a conversation with me always know where they stand. Always. I think partly it's time management, you know, because I don't want to string anyone along. I just don't have the time. But I think it's also because it's common courtesy. People just want to know, just deal with it. Yeah. And and the world is more like that now today, I think, yeah. than it used to be also. Yeah. I also think I've gotten good at giving bad news. The thing about being in this job is you sometimes have to give bad news. What is the secret to giving bad news? You say it really fast. <laughs> you know, first it was the, it's, you know, it, it, 
it's not you, it's me. <laughs> but you just have to say something nice, and then you have to get out of the way. The preamble of, oh, just sit down, I have to tell you. I mean, it's sickening. You have to be so I, I want, I'm sensitive to other people, and I never want to squash anyone's dream. And there's always some little spark in someone that you just want to continue to ignite and not to blow out. Well, they're lucky it's you sitting across the table. Thank you. Jody Gerson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca. I really appreciate being here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Emma Kozlowski. She is the owner and designer of Emma Lynn Designs, which is a line of custom handmade accessories. Emma is a former special education teacher based in Bethel, Connecticut. She started Emma Lynn Designs more than three years ago when she was just 23 years old. What began as a hobby, making accessories just for herself, turned into a business when people started noticing what she was wearing and wanted their own. She worked for two and a half years while building her business before leaving her teaching job. She says she wanted to ensure that she had a loyal customer base, a solid product, a business model, and a website before taking the plunge. Emma says she initially invested $500 into her business and then has reinvested every bit of her earnings over the last three years. She says her biggest obstacle was standing out and differentiating herself from other accessory companies, and she did that by letting customers design their own accessories and have the products custom-made to order. She also started designing her own patterns and has them printed on water-resistant fabric, which she says makes her product unique and gives them a branded identity. If she could go back and give herself advice, she says she would tell herself to ask for help. She's learned that so many people are willing to help and share their knowledge, and she says she's grown so much from asking questions. Congratulations, Emma Kozlowski. I wish you and Emmeline Designs continued success. I hope you'll keep checking back in with us at No Limits and let us know how it's going. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I read every email that comes to that address, and I love hearing all of your stories and hearing from all of you. So keep it coming. Also, if you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. It helps spread the word, it helps people find the podcast. And we also read all of those reviews and take them very seriously. So if there's ever anything that you want us to think about doing differently, feel free to let me know. You can also do that on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. And on LinkedIn, I'm there at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits. By the way, a heads up, coming up this Friday, we are releasing our second episode of RJ Answers. If you want a chance to talk to me, ask me a question about your career, you can send me an email again at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. This week, we have a great conversation with one of our entrepreneurs of the week who has some career questions of her own and her future. I think you're going to like it. I also want to give a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen every week. Our wonderful producer, Taylor Dunn, our fabulous editor, Michelle Boncardo, my awesome research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the fabulous team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thank you to ABC Radio for helping us make this happen. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.